I was saying, I think I need to go to the doctor. I don't feel great physically. And, um, and there's a bunch of stuff that I avoided. And while I was drinking, I should probably go figure that out. And um, my friend said, do it. You know, absolutely do it. And I went to the doctor and... Hey there, Recovery Nation. Producer John here. Today's episode of Full Potential Now is part two of Ted's interview with writer and podcaster Sean Mahoney. If you haven't listened to part one first, visit fullpotentialnow.org or your podcast provider of choice. Let's get right into it. So what would you do if you went to the doctor and were diagnosed with some disease that might alter your life forever? Would you face it? Would you hide it? Would you run from it? Or would you reach out for support? And what if you had an addiction too? Would you just go back to using and just numb out and assume that you'll die soon enough? I went to the doctor and I found out that I was HIV positive and um, it was one of those things that intellectually I knew in 2009 the world had changed. The world of medicine had changed. People with HIV lived healthy lives. Um, as an addict and an alcoholic, however, getting that kind of news seemed like a pass to go drink and use. According to Siegel and Lekas in 2002, HIV slash AIDS is known to cause emotional distress and physiological problems in most people infected with the virus. And so theoretically, this could constitute a motivating factor to seek substance use treatment. While other research suggests a slightly different path, According to the National Institute of Health in 2017, the stress associated with being diagnosed with a major illness such as HIV and having an active alcohol and drug addiction can actually lead one to be more reckless with their using and managing of their illness. A sort of don't care attitude because I'm going to die anyway. So if you were to face a life-threatening illness and you were addicted, would you just go back to using? Would you allow your complete identity to be defined by the illness and lose hope? Or would you see yourself as more than your illness and see the illness and this adversity as a potential pivotal transformational moment in your life? I didn't drink in years. I ended up reaching out to people in the program and... Sure enough, as always is the case with me, I had shared about it. And then several other people, 
from my home group in Santa Monica were like, oh my God, me too. Or I'm not, but this person is and call them and they can help you. And so it was amazing. It was amazing. It was amazing. And I now share that as part of my story because other people did that for me. And, um, and so I am just like floored, man. You know, I didn't really know like totally about you, but like hearing like just these, these obstacles, like sort of having the deck stacked against you early on, you know, going through the trials and tribulations of alcoholism and drug addiction, all that coming to terms with this idea of like, um, which is huge was like be able to reach out given that you were schooled never to reach out and to kind of contain it. Um, that's like an amazing like obstacle or mountain to climb and get over and then sort of like almost be on track and then all of a sudden, whammo, I'm not feeling well. Oh, guess what? I got HIV. Right. I feel like relapsing, but then reaching out at that pivotal moment, like being able to reach out, like you've sort of like redone yourself in so many ways. And I especially like the part about that when you went to the meetings, you initially just the part about saying like, oh, I'm an alcoholic. It's alcoholism that alcoholism actually isn't my personal identity. It's right. not my whole identity. I always thought it maybe was, but that's just a piece of me. Absolutely. And then I almost, I'm, I, I mean, I don't know. I'm put words in your mouth, Sean, but I almost wonder, like, coming to terms with that would almost be like, all right, I have HIV, but is that going to be my entire identity? Well, I and mean, that was the thing is that, and thank God, another sober people had put this in my mind is that there was so much more to me, and so much more to me to happen from that moment. Like these things were not the end of the story. And in fact, like they were kind of the beginning and they were kind of like what changed the rest of my life in the best possible way. You know, like, um, despite all of that, like I feel, and I say this all the time and it's not BS. Like I feel like those things were gifts because had I not had those changes, I wouldn't be where I am now. And, um, and, uh, yeah, I just, I feel like they were absolutely necessary for my development. I, um, I've been able to really like find the humor in a lot of it and been able to write so much about it and, um, and to like pass it on to other people. And, um, yeah, it's just, I don't know. It's been an incredible gift, which is a weird thing to say about adversity, but it really has been. Amazing, amazing. Could you talk, and I don't know if this fits for you, but could you talk like how you're writing and, and just your, is it almost like background and like theater and that sort of thing? Yeah, and totally. And how that I'm, possibly has impacted you? For sure. Well, so I've always been like a writer and a storyteller and like I was really big into art when I was a little, little kid and then theater in my um, teens and twenties. And um, so the thing about it is, and I had actually moved to LA thinking, Oh, well that'd be a great place to be a writer. But it turns out that like you actually have to write something if you're going to be a writer. (laughs) 
and <laughs> I know it's so weird. But um, why do it, they set it up that way? I know. God. <laughs> I, I honestly thought like I could just have great ideas and somebody would knock on my door and be like, here's $20,000. Right. I something. love that idea. <laughs> Isn't yeah. that how it's supposed to be? No, it's not. Um, and you know, I was around a bunch of talented people and, and I thought, well, yeah, surely like it'll be my turn soon. But the difference between me and those people were those people were like actually working and working really hard and got the success based on how much they worked. I, on the other hand, was drinking and using seven nights a week. And so it was very hard to ever finish anything for people. I had had little journalism gigs and side gigs and writing stuff um, that would all eventually fall to the wayside because I was unreliable. You know, I had one editor that, like, I worked for a, a cool indie newspaper in L.A., and I loved working for them. Um, and uh, I had one deadline once a month, and I missed it every single month. Every single month I missed it. I was always late. And it was like, seriously, you have an entire month. And I would never do it. Yeah. And, um, and bless her because she was always so nice to me, but eventually just kind of like let me fade away. And, um, yeah, I, uh, I, I was completely unreliable. And so when I got sober – then it came back. You know what I mean? Like then I was like, Oh wait, this is what I like to do. And I love doing this. And, um, I got hired for some copywriting jobs in my first year of sobriety and they were super fun. And then that started me blogging and started me, um, doing playwriting. Uh, I started like blogging about my sobriety in like 2012, 2011. Um, Back then, the space was not very crowded, and it was a weird uh, but really amazing time to blog about that stuff. And um, I uh, really learned a lot about my own, like telling my own narrative. Um, One of my heroes is Carrie Fisher, and I had read her book, Wishful Drinking, when in my first like two months of sobriety. And what I loved about her is that she was so funny and so honest. And I thought, oh, my God, I could do that, too. And um, and I uh, so that's kind of how my first blog started. And then I met all of these other people who were sobriety bloggers, too. And um, I was playwriting at the time, too. And so all of those worlds kind of mixed together. And um, and then, like, as I've continued to write and started writing for more stuff, my story continues to develop. You know, I think it were an interesting place with all of that. Like so many sobriety memoirs get published and so many of those things. And it, and I think all of them are awesome because the more we tell the story, the more information is out there and more something will resonate for someone. Um, however, for me now, like, okay, I've been sober almost nine years. So then what? You know, and the adventure continues. Yes, I love this. I, yeah, I totally love where you're going with this. 
Um, well, before I, I go there, I just want to say, like, I've read a lot of your blogs and writings just in preparing for the podcast. You're an amazing creative writer. So definitely get on and, and check out Sean's work. And where can our uh, listeners check you out at? Well, um, I publish weekly on my own site, seanalogs.com. And then I've written for uh, thefix.com and Addiction Unscripted, as well as uh, After Party Magazine I wrote a lot for. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm easily Googleable if you put Google. me in it. <laughs> Is that a word? Maybe yeah. it's a word. We'll make it a word because I yeah, love it. Yeah, Googleable. Um, yeah, if you just put me in Google, there's a bunch of my writings everywhere, which is, I mean, that in and of itself is amazing that I'm able to finish stuff and put stuff out is amazing. And that would not have happened while I was drinking. I tried really, really hard and I just didn't get that. Like I had a debilitating condition that prohibited me from doing almost anything. Yeah. And so now that I'm able to like, people will say, Oh, we need an article. And then I'm actually able to do it. Is, I mean, that's always amazing to me. Yeah. It's like <laughs> that I turn stuff in. It's like, wow, crazy. Because that was not who I was. I was not very reliable. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I. Uh, yeah, I was going to ask you a quick question, though, which was you were hedging into there, which is like oftentimes we a lot of stuff is centered on like how to get sober how to like first get started. But I think what you're, we're, we're going to go into is something that isn't really talked about a whole lot, which is all right. After you've been sober for a while, how do you keep things juicy while you're sober? Cause you're still evolving right. and developing as a person. So to think that you're the same person as you were a year out of the gate being sober first now, it's just not true. So I'm no. I was curious about, yeah, where, where you were, kind of headed towards, which was like, what are you doing now to stay juiced up? So if you are a person with HIV and in recovery and find purpose and meaning in your life and are able to transcend the HIV diagnosis as well as get yourself into a solid recovery plan, what then? I mean, the research and science point to addiction as being a chronic relapsing disease. Wouldn't a person just fall back into relapsing if they lose their hope, meaning, and purpose of their recovery? And if they did, and then maybe lost someone close to them, wouldn't they just be like destined to get back into their addiction? How do you stay motivated in recovery and handle the daily stressors of life? That's the great misnomer. Of course, the bottoming out story is so dramatic. And... And that's what people like. And everybody wants that detail because that is very real. And, and then the comeback out of that is very real. What we don't ever know is what happens next. Because as any addict or alcoholic will actually tell you in real life, like it's not that you quit drinking and then everything got better. And a lot of times things get worse or <laughs> things get harder. And because you're and, more aware of it all. Exactly. It's like, oh, great. Like I was just actually talking to a friend of mine. We were laughing who's sober. And I said, oh, I'm so glad that we got sober to watch the world get covered in flames and in uh, water right now. Um, amazing. Nice to be hyper conscious for all of this. But um, uh, yeah, so I mean, that's the big mystery, right? Like what what happens now? I mean, for example, last year my grandmother died. 
and we were incredibly close and close primarily from in adulthood from me getting sober. Uh, she lived a block away from us in Denver. And, um, so getting through that sober was incredible. I mean, heartbreaking, hard, beautiful, um, amazing. And, and like something I honestly never thought I'd be able to do is deal with death sober. And I think that for me as a writer is the great unknown. Like how, how does a person like me who never liked to deal with anything ever, how do, how does that person deal with stuff now? That's the question. So be able to, yeah, continue. and I think no, I'll, I'll shut up. But um, no, I think, no, you're you're on a roll, man. This is like good stuff. This <laughs> is kind of I, stuff I think, that people do, sometimes don't talk about, and it's like super well, cool. No, it's, it's messy too, and you don't want to scare people off yeah. who are new sober. Be like, oh yeah, well get ready. But like, <laughs> it is very real, you know. Like, and I'm inter- eternally grateful for the people that were in my meetings in Santa Monica in the early sobriety. There was a woman with 25 plus years sober who was going through terminal cancer, who was going to my meetings and she had said, well, this would be exactly that. Like this would be an awesome time for me to go back to using and drinking because what do I have to lose? However, I'm going to stay sober and to see somebody go through that was like a light going on for me. Like, Oh my God, I could do that too. So as a writer, I think that is what propels me of this idea that there's bigger adventures happening. And, you know, I have a lot of other issues. <laughs> and so there's no, there's no shortage of material since I like to write about myself uh, <laughs> of stuff that I have to deal with as a sober person. <laughs> right? Don't we all? Some of us that- are more willing to admit it than others, but don't we all? Well, and I like the idea of that, you know, you're only as sick as your secrets. So for me, it's, it is, it is a path to getting better, to be able to pull stuff out and to be like, okay, this is what I'm going through. You know, I have depression too. And I've written a lot about that as well. And my journey with that as well. And, um, I think like, uh, it's just another thing to maybe like talk about and hopefully somebody else who's going through the same stuff can identify with or not identify with whatever. Um, yeah, I don't know. So I think that kind of is how it has helped me in recovery and then created kind of a weird niche career where people randomly pay me (laughs) to talk about myself. So that's awesome too. Yeah. Yeah. According to Avert in 2017, there's a cyclical relationship between stigma and HIV. People who experience stigma and discrimination are marginalized and made more vulnerable to HIV, while those living with HIV are more vulnerable to experiencing stigma and discrimination. There are plenty of myths and misinformation that increase the stigma and discrimination surrounding both HIV and AIDS. Roughly one in eight people living with HIV is being denied health services because of the stigma and discrimination. So what would it look like if you had to face the stigma and bullying associated with being gay, addicted, having HIV in America? I wanted to come back a little bit to to a question. Sure. And that was, 
you know, you grew up in an alcoholic home, but I also wanted to hear if you wanted to talk a little bit about it, about yeah. it. But what it was like, I mean, because you, you had like a lot of like societal taboos facing you, like the part about being gay, coming out, right. then getting HIV and living with HIV. I would yeah. almost think like that's also like a whole journey in itself. And I'm not sure if you'd want to talk a little bit about that and, oh. and what you learned from those experiences and how you got through them. Totally. I mean, I um, like I said, I love talking about all of that because it is like it is it's totally different stuff. I mean, I think for me, I came out in the era of like gay bars, like, and so I always say my closet door opened into a bar like I just like walked out of the closet and into the bar <laughs> and and that was great because by then I was like 17 ish when I started going to gay bars I didn't really officially like it wasn't really out until like my early 20s but everybody knew but um I uh yeah and I think if you look statistically LGBT people have a higher rate of addiction and, um, and being predisposed to it. And I think a lot of it is the fact that it is, um, and suicide too. And I think a lot of it is the pressure of being different and not fitting in and getting a message that you're not okay and getting a message that you're not okay from everybody all the time. And, um, I think, for me, I had gone through severe bullying as a teenager. And so by the time that I had actually like started drinking and being around gay people, it was like, yeah, this is good. This feels good. Um, had I not been an addict, it might've been okay. And I know a lot of gay people who don't have issues with drugs and alcohol, like my husband's completely normal. Um, but, uh, for me, it was, it helped dealing with who I was or consequently not dealing with who I was. Um, and then, so later it was instrumental in my sobriety that I went to gay meetings and LA is awesome because they have so many of them. And, um, to hear my story from so many people was like, you know, such a relief. And, um, and then the journey with HIV has been the same too. You know, uh, it was surprising, you know, um, it was eight years in August since my diagnosis and, um, that the misinformation still in 2009, um, and even on my own, you know, I had to relearn everything that I thought about HIV and AIDS and, Again, coming out in the 80s and 90s, it was still a death sentence for so long. And so um, to have that completely change and then also to have the self-esteem within me change where it was like, well, wait, I can still have relationships and people can still love me. And I'm not a terrible person. And um, that took a lot of work, you know. Yeah. And lot of work man it and, just just kind of resonates with me just this idea that you really kind of cross this bridge of like probably in anybody's life I and mean, we can look at addiction 
you can look at different like terminal cancer, HIV, and who knows what else, but that they don't become our identities and we don't right. like fuse to that thing as our whole identity. And it, it's because then the storyline is it means this, but it's almost as if you were able to on a bunch of different, like really tough situations, be able to like, not like make it your identity, but say, all right, this is something I'm going to deal with, but there's more to me than just that. And I guess maybe the self-confidence helped that you could deal with it and then know that there's something else out there for you. Well, yeah. And I mean, I really, I credit the people around me, you know, being around so many sober gay men and so many with HIV and, and then just other people who had gone through similar stuff who really let me know that I was going to be okay. Um, I don't think I would be able to do it on my own. I, um, yeah, my self-esteem, my self-confidence has changed, but like I, I certainly need a lot of support and I still do, you know? And so, um, I, uh, I think that has been really the magic recipe for me. You know, when I look at what was different, when I kept trying to quit on my own and kept trying to get better on my own and kept failing and going, oh my God, what is wrong? Um, to 2009 where I got help, the difference is other people, mm. you know, it's easy for me. And when I see friends struggle, it's usually the missing ingredient of like not having support. And it doesn't have to be 12 step meetings, but in my mind, I think it has to be something, right? Yeah. Like it's got something. It's got to be therapy or it's got to be a counseling or it's got to be whatever. But I think time and again, what we see with this is that um, you just can't do it alone. Mm-hmm. You know, you just can't do it alone. And you almost think, I almost think on the flip side too, Sean, with people that are actively engaged in, you know, like, either drinking or drugging that actually they probably seek out support for that. They're just other people that are drinking and drugging. So it's, it's almost like support actually runs through the whole process. It just depends on where you're going to get it from. Totally. Absolutely. Well, and you know, and it's so funny that like for me, my drinking and drugging initially was so centered on being social and, um, getting me, other people to like me, you know, and to hang out with other people. And so the flip side of my sobriety has been the same thing is that now I have a bunch of friends who are sober and, and we're bonded together because of this. And, um, it's been amazing. You know, I, I need all the help I can get. And so I, um, not only do I use 12 step meetings still, and I still have a sponsor, Um, I also, you know, the digital world of recovery is really awesome, you know, through Twitter, through blogging, through all kinds of stuff. There is like a world out there of people going through the same thing. And now my sobriety family stretches across the globe. You know, there are people who I am close to who are sober in the UK and in Canada and in New York. And, um, and it's just because we all have the same thing. You know, so um, I think it's there if I want it and I still need to seek it out. You know, I can still get in a mindset where 
I'm the boss and I'm okay and you don't have to worry about me. But in, but now my pain threshold is a little bit lower. You know, now I can be uncomfortable and go, okay, this sucks. I need to ask somebody for help. I just went through it. I just went through it like for like four weeks. I was very depressed about um, like financial and job stuff. And um, I was unwilling to kind of like change my thinking still. And um, then I had to like get uncomfortable and reach out to other alcoholics and other addicts and like clockwork, it worked again, you know? Mm -hmm. And so what this is for me is a pattern of being able to reach out and going against the grain of how I grew up. Um, Now it's about looking for support instead of acting like I can do everything on my own. So yeah, that, I mean, that's a big difference for me. Wow. What, what a, what a pearl of wisdom too, Sean. Well, um, I have a couple other questions here, and uh, one question pertains to if somebody, if one of our listeners was out there, they happen to put this podcast on, they're listening, they've been kind of following the same path you've been following, like early on in your life, they're maybe 25, 26, they've been using since the age of 15, they've kind of thought about it, they can kind of see where it's going, would you, what would you maybe say to that person or offer to them in terms of thinking or oh gosh ideas. I, mean, um, I know for me i i wasn't done until i was done mm. uh, well and said a, and unfortunately it took a very long time but i would say if your impulse is you think that it's problematic then you're probably right and um, I know it takes a lot of guts to ask for help. And so, and I think that's like, you see these commercials where people are like, ask for help. And it's like, Oh, that's really hard though. <laughs> yeah. you know? Really hard to ask for help. It's like, just say no. And just ask for help. It's yeah. like, Oh, yeah. okay. And just ride a unicorn, you know, yeah. like it's like really hard to do. <laughs> and so, or call I, now, call now. Oh, okay. Yeah, that that'll take care of it. Um, <laughs> Maybe they can have a unicorn go across the screen. Maybe. See, that. <laughs> but like, I just I think if if you're getting an impulse or an intuitive thought that it's problematic, then you're probably right, and the help is available. Um, and that's all. I mean, that, that's really, well said. So really, like. Pretty simple stuff, short but tough, but like trust yourself. Totally. Absolutely. Yeah, like actually trust it. In the midst of addiction, you think something's wrong, there's probably a good chance something probably could be wrong. Yeah, absolutely. And that like it's also not a big deal. I mean it is a big deal because it can kill you, but it, you're not alone is the thing. It's like you look at the numbers now, and the numbers are crazy with how much addiction – um, happens in this country that like I think the stigma around it needs to be shattered because it's now so normal you know it's like of course you're going through this because so many millions of people are going through it too and um, 
I think that was the thing that I didn't really understand until much later in sobriety uh, that what, how many people go through it, you know, there was hearing so many stories and that's why I think podcasts like yours are so awesome is that when you hear stories, um, you get to go, Oh yeah, cool. Somebody else has this too. And there is a relatability to it. And by being what you're doing is you're sharing this with people and that they get to kind of tap in to something. Maybe they're feeling alone and that they, they get to go, Oh, thank God. You know? So I think, I don't know. I think that's the only advice that I would have is that just listen to yourself and you're probably right. Only, but the best advice, man, definitely, definitely solid advice for anybody out there. Well, um, we're getting kind of close to the end here, but I always like okay. to uh, do what I call, I'm working on this new segment called the lightning round. Oh, cool. So I, like I have a couple questions here. I'm just going to try it out. We may or may not use it, but this is uh, the lightning round with Sean. So I'm going to ask you like three questions and then you just cool. do your best to answer them like in like 30 seconds or less. Okay, cool. All right. Favorite hobby? Uh, cooking. Cooking. What's yeah. your favorite thing to cook? You know, I cook everything. And that was another thing. Like I used to, it used to be just like cooking and drinking, which um, <laughs> disastrous and always took too long. So turns out I'm a better cook when I'm not wasted. And I love to cook everything. I, I'm like one of those like food show, food magazine nerds. I stopped waiting in line for bars and now I wait in line for like restaurants. So, um, yeah, I love it. Excellent. Uh, most uh, helpful book you've ever read? Um, One of them. Oh, my gosh. Okay, so it's not a book, but it's a short story called um, Cathedral by Raymond Carver. And he's like the American god of short stories. And I will tell you, I read this short story by him uh, my first year of sobriety I was taking an English class at Santa Monica College, and um, I read this story, and then I read this bio about him, and they talk about all the amazing things that he won and all the stuff that he wrote, and at the end of the bio, it says, but Carver often thought the biggest achievement that he had in life was quitting drinking, Mm -hmm. and I read this, and I had always loved him as a writer, and then reading that, it was just like, oh my God, I like, it blew my mind, so yeah. Well, the final question is actually pertains to that. We didn't even plot this out, but what do you think is your biggest success or achievement in your own life or one of them? Oh my gosh. Um, I, this sounds ridiculous, but I will say love and I will say love because by getting sober, I have been able to give and receive love from my family, from my husband, from my animals, you know, like, and that's it. And I wasn't awake for it in the real world. So yeah, I've had stuff published and yeah, I've been able to travel, but really at the end of the day, love. And that would be it. Well, we want to thank you, Sean. You are one amazing, fabulous guy. Um, We really appreciate you telling us about your journey through life, 
from addiction to sobriety. It's just an absolutely amazing story. And with that, we salute you. Thank you so much, Ted. It was an honor to be on your show. Awesome. Hey there, Recovery Nation. Producer John here. Thank you once again to Sean Mahoney for sharing his time and story with us. Make sure to visit his site, seanalogs.com. If you liked today's episode, you can subscribe, leave a review, and listen to past episodes on iTunes. And visit fullpotentialnow.org for your free TED tools, including where to find a rehab center near you. This episode featured music by Pat Reinholtz, Lovely Socialite, and me, John Procruzzi. Thanks for listening.